Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo. Cold blood is with the strong scheme. I'm a boss. Flip the coin, toss, it's straws. I'm out of loss. How my brains get busted. Slinging letters into couplets. Muck up the subjects. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week I've been thinking about empathy, diversity, connection, and association. I've been thinking about transition, heartache, anxiety, tenacity, and consolation. I've been thinking about what it takes to truly understand another person's perspective and to adjust our own. I've been thinking about imagination and compassion, travel, adventure, intrigue, and romance. I've been thinking about reading. Today, my guest is bibliotherapist Ella Bertu. Ella started reading on a journey from Tehran to London on the parcel shelf of a Wolseley 1300 when she was five. She spent the next 13 years reading books in inappropriate places like ski lifts and trampolines. She studied English literature at Cambridge University where she read as many novels as she could at once. She continued on to university at East London where she studied fine art and combined her twin passions of reading and painting by listening to books while creating works of art. She has worked as an artist in residence at Pentonville Prison, Friends School, Saffron Walden, and Queenswood School. Welcome so much, Ella, and thank you for joining me. Great to meet you, Ellie, and I'm delighted to be here with you today. Okay, so we're going to start with the basics. We're going to start with what is bibliotherapy, because I ran uh, across the word when I was reading a New Yorker article in preparation for a show I'd done earlier in the year, and I literally had to check to see if it was a real thing, and I was very happy and pleased to see that it, that it is and, and has been. So what is bibliotherapy? Bibliotherapy is the art of prescribing fiction in order to cure life's ailments. So me and my friend Susan Elderkin decided that we would bring the joy of reading fiction to every man in the street, if possible, in order to tackle life's ups and downs. I could start at the beginning, if you like, with how Susan and I met and how we began the idea of bibliotherapy. So, so yeah, let, I, I definitely want to talk about how you got there. But let's also, let's start with a little bit of um, the history of bibliotherapy itself, because not only was I surprised to find it was an actual thing that was actually being practiced, but that yeah. it's been around since the, the, the phrase was coined back in 1916 by Samuel Crothers in the use of books to change behavior and reduce stress. And it has a really long history dated back to the Middle Ages. Yes, in fact, it goes back to the Greeks with Aristotle, who was a great believer in the power of bibliotherapy in terms of reading and experiencing plays and poetry. And they, some of the Greeks actually devoted whole towns and um, ways of life to studying literature as a means of empowering themselves for life. So it was actually going on in very ancient times. But as you say, it's also been used in medieval times and then in the early 20th century. So there were some doctors who prescribed soldiers in the Second World War books in order to cope with their shell shock. So um, Jane Austen was prescribed to people who came back from the 
battles that they'd experienced and were finding it very hard to cope with life. And they they were given Jane Austen to read, which seems like quite a strange choice in a way. But apparently they were given Jane Austen because it would remind them of home and all the good things about being English and would take them back to a time and a place of safety and a place where social mores were understandable and everything was kind of in its right place, which was exactly the opposite of what they'd experienced in the war. So bibliotherapy has been used over the last 2000 years in various different ways. It was also used in the 1960s by doctors to help children having difficulties at home or having experienced trauma or bereavement and that kind of thing. So it has always been used in various different different ways, but we decided to build our own unique approach to bibliotherapy when we started it in 2008 at the School of Life in London. So I'm going to stop you for a second because I want to go back to something you said I, it, it, that got me thinking about the, the Greeks and having whole towns dedicated to reading. And what what sort of part of society was taking hold of, of that movement? And what what place, if, if you're familiar with the history of this, did books play in, in those societies, those early societies? Well, to start with, it was an entirely audio version of reading. So it was all about the spoken word. And um, Socrates was a great believer in passing down wisdom through poetry and through the narrative voice. And actually, he said that writing things down was a great disservice to humanity because it meant that people would lose the ability to remember and lose the ability to pass on great literary thought in the way that they, in the time-honoured way that they had done in the oral tradition. He felt very anti the idea of reading. But later on, the, um, the Greek poets and playwrights began to really believe in the in the power of reading and the power of of passing things on through the written word and it did become much more of a accepted form of um experiencing catharsis so you know with the greek tragedies there's that great idea of catharsis where you watch somebody going through something awful like a terrible murder or a terrible revenge and by watching them go through it you are healed of your own feelings of trauma pain stress vengeance murderous thoughts and so on and the idea was that this catharsis could be experienced not just by watching the play but also by reading the play so that was then carried on over the centuries until the time of Shakespeare, who also wrote amazing tragedies through which people experience catharsis. And catharsis is something that we still to this day look to literature in order to find ways of undergoing without actually having to undergo the emotion directly, if possible. So Socrates would probably not be very pleased to be living in our age of texting and and um, e-books. 
I'm wondering, it makes me think, no. in, in England, is there still a tradition in education? I know it, it was with, with my mother that children are taught to memorize long verse and um, pieces of literature. Or has that Unfortunately, yeah, not really so much now. It's, it's far less common. And it's something that me and my colleague Susan are really keen to try and reintroduce to children. And there are quite a lot of educators in England who are very keen to bring that back. But it's not nearly so much a part of the curriculum now as it as it always used to be. And when I, even when I was at school, it was still much more accepted and expected to learn whole poems and passages of prose and nowadays that really is a rarity which is a great shame it is a great shame just one because it's so lovely to be with someone who can all of a sudden recite something fitting and also i think what a wonderful exercise for your learning capacity and, and memory and in your brain yes Absolutely. And we feel it's a really important thing to have, to be able to have whole passages of text at your disposal, at your disposal in your brain, which you can refer to and go back to in moments of difficulty, whether it's a minor trauma or a major trauma, it's actually really useful to have poetry to fall back on. And um, we often talk about the idea of having a comfort book in your head, whether it's a book um, which could be a, a story or whether it's actually a poem or a passage of prose, which you can call to mind when you just need something to reflect on. And if it, if it does happen to be in a, in a moment of trauma, whether it's something as small as a traffic jam or as sort of big as an, as, as an earthquake, then having a poem in your head is an amazing thing. Well, I'm guessing it's the same experience as the soldiers in World War II were having reading Jane Austen, right? Comforting and bringing back to another time and place where the anxiety or sadness or whatever experience it is you might be struggling with at the moment didn't exist. And a reminder exactly. of, of your connection to that and connection to history and past and, and present and future all in one. Yes, so, so um, I want to talk a little bit about how you came to be interested in bibliotherapy and your relationship with Susan Elderkin and how that developed in Cambridge. Right. So we met when we were both new at Cambridge, uh, when we were freshmen, as you would say, I think, in the States. Um, and we were in adjacent rooms and we rapidly discovered that we both shared a deep love of literature and when we were both going through different issues and traumas the kind that every student goes through whether it's falling in love with someone falling out of love with someone um, finding it very difficult to concentrate on work or working too hard or worrying about what you're going to do as a career and so on. We used to give each other books in order to help each other through those situations. So we would pass novels to each other 
in little brown paper bags that we would leave outside each other's rooms in the middle of the night. And then the other one would wake up the next morning and find something like To Kill a Mockingbird outside their door, or it might be Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveller, or it might be a Jane Austen novel, etc. And we would then read those books that the other person had recommended. And we gradually realized that we shared very similar tastes and very similar love for particular authors. And over the years, we carried on giving each other these books whenever there was a moment of difficulty or passion or intensity in in each other's lives. And over the years, after leaving Cambridge, when we went on different paths, we carried on with that habit of giving each other books. And we realized more and more that those recommendations were of enormous influence on each other's lives. And we started to recommend them to our family and other friends and to colleagues professionally and so on. So while Susan was becoming a novelist and I was becoming an artist, we were still sending each other books, giving each other books and doing the same to everyone we met. And we realized more and more that this was a not just a lovely thing to do for each other as friends, but actually something with profound healing opportunities. And we began to talk more and more about the idea that we should bring this to the public at large. And that's when we approached Alain de Botton at the School of Life, who was starting this new amazing institution, the School of Life, which I don't know if you've heard of over there. But we were then embraced under the umbrella of the School of Life to become bibliotherapists there and to join them in bringing new ideas to the people of London. And then gradually the School of Life has spread to other countries and cities around the world. I had not heard of it again until I saw this article and looked up to see if bibliotherapy was real. And then I saw the School of Life and I looked up to see if that was real because I thought, again, I thought, okay, is this something that really exists? And then I was again, so fantastic to see that, yes, it is. And when I saw that you could go there to deal with existential trauma or, or uh, you know, any kind of transitional challenge you were having in life, I thought, okay, not only first I have to interview Ella, but next it's someone from the School of Life, because I thought it was so interesting. I want to ask you something about your friendship with, your early friendship with Susan. And I just, as you were talking, I was thinking about a study they'd done at Stanford University a couple years ago about um, diversity and about how do you get two very different people to connect with each other. And one experiment they did with people with very different backgrounds that were very different sort of inside and out was they had a, a plant in the situation and they had her, they knew what books people in the room liked and they had her mention to other people that she also liked those books. And they showed later on that when they had this in common, they were much more likely to be compassionate um, or helpful even um, when they had something in common. And I'm wondering if you and Susan, you, you think you would have been as good of friends or the friendship would have developed as quickly if you hadn't shared this love of books and, and love for specific books. 
I think it was all about our love of books and particular books that that was the reason that we were drawn together so immediately and so closely. I mean, we were, after all, English students at a college at Cambridge, so we were bound to be having a lot in common because we both loved English literature. That's why we were there. That's why we were taking the degree. But then we also discovered that we really gelled and hit it off over particular books that we really loved and the books that we gave to each other really struck a chord with the other person. So the empathy between us was definitely hugely deepened and empowered by those particular books because I think if you share a a book with a friend and you both love that book and you both talk about the book in depth and talk about the things you love about it and the things you hate about it and the characters in the book you feel as if you've lived a whole life together through that novel because in the novel there's probably several lifetimes lived and so your friendship has also lived through those lifetimes in a way which is unlike any other kind of friendship experience I think apart from actually living through a lifetime together so for instance if we gelled over Thomas Hardy's Far From the Madding Crowd we felt like we had lived through Bathsheba Everdeen's trials and tribulations over the three men that she loved and wanted to love. And so Susan and I shared those heartbreaks within a couple of weeks of meeting each other. We'd kind of lived 50 years of each other's lives together, if you see what I mean. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I'm wondering if that is part of the science behind the efficacy of bibliotherapy. You had said that it it can help heal or provoke and also connect. Yes, very true. So I think the connection side of it is one of the most important sides of it because you're connecting with other readers through reading a book but you're also connecting with the writer on a very profound and spiritual level and every reader is different with every with with the same writer and you're also connecting with the characters and some readers will connect with the heroine of a book like far from the madding crowd in a very different way to how others will connect. Some will think she's fantastic and completely admirable. Others will think she's really irritating and weak. So it the way that you different readers react to different characters is is really telling as well. And that is often an important aspect of a friendship. If if one of you loves a the central character and the other one hates them that could cause an enormous discord in your relationship and luckily when Susan and I first met each other we tended to agree over how we felt about most of the characters in the books that we were reading of course we did have some differences as all readers will but we were mostly chiming in with each other's opinions
So let's talk a little bit about the School of Life. I, when I went to the site, um, I saw it says, life's too short for bad books, but with a new book published every 30 seconds, it can be hard to know where to start. Um, there are those books that have the power to enchant, enrich, and inspire. And they yes. offer then consultations with, with the bibliotherapist, you, you being one. And yes. you are asked to explore your relationships with books and then will be asked to explore new, new literary directions. How did you come about the School of Life? And did you know, had you and Susan both known that bibliotherapy existed? And that was it being done before you two um, connected with the School of Life? We actually believed that we'd invented bibliotherapy, which wasn't true. But when we first dreamed it up at Cambridge, we thought that we were pioneers in this completely new world that no one else had ever thought of. But of course, the more we researched it, the more we discovered that there were other people that had been there before, such as Aristotle himself and other people over the centuries. So we were a bit disappointed to discover that we weren't the, the first people to have ever thought of it. But we did discover that there weren't any people who were doing it in the same way that we wanted to practice bibliotherapy now. So since leaving Cambridge and spending years prescribing fiction to each other, we thought more and more about how one would do it as a service with clients. And we decided that we did really want to prescribe fiction, most of all, um, with a smattering of non-fiction titles, which would be kind of literary non-fiction books about nature or some autobiographies or biographies and so on. But for us, it was really key that our clients would be changed and transformed by the fiction that they read more than anything else. And we hadn't at that point found anyone else that was doing the same form of bibliotherapy as that. There were some people that were using bibliotherapy with the National Health Service in England, but they were using self-help books or books that were about ways of combating depression and that kind of thing, so non-fiction. And there was no one, no one else out there using just fiction. So we then thought about how to tailor make prescriptions for our clients and how best to approach the clients and find out what it was that they needed. So we developed together um, with an advisor from the School of Life a questionnaire about how, which was all about what books you love, what books you hate, when you read, what you read, how you read, all sorts of questions about your reading habits. And then also lots of personal questions. So are you single, married, divorced? Do you have any particular issues in your life at the moment? What are your current preoccupations? All that kind of thing. So all that was on the questionnaire that we developed, which gets sent to our bibliotherapy clients. And they then reply to the questionnaire, send it back to us by email. 
And then when we meet the client, we go through that questionnaire in much more depth with the client and answer all those questions thoroughly and find out what it is that makes the client tick as a reader and also as a human and to find out what might be worrying them at the moment or what concerns they might have. But of course, quite a lot of bibliotherapy clients that come to us are purely coming to talk about what to read just because they they love reading and they might feel slightly stuck in a rut. They just might want to have new ideas, new directions in reading. But then there are also a large number of clients that come to us because they want to talk about particular issues in their lives and how to tackle them and which books might help them through particular problems or issues that they might have at the, at the moment. And how much time and energy and thought went into developing the questionnaire? And were you clear on what you were trying to discern um, at the end of it? I mean, were you sort of like, okay, here, if a person liked War and Peace, they go in this pile. And if they couldn't, you know, stand to read Dostoevsky, well, then they go in that. It means they're this sort of person. How, how much sort of... Um, analysis were the two of you doing over or with what people answered on the questionnaire? Well, it's such a unique and particular art form in a way that every client is always going to be different and we can never really look at an answer to a question like what are your favorite books or which books have you hated and and just think, okay, you hate Dostoevsky, therefore you're this kind of person or whatever, because people are so different with their reading habits. And some people love Tolstoy and also love Jojo Moyes, um, but hate Dick Francis or Edgar Allan Poe. You know, people are so quirky with the things that they love and the things that they dislike with reading and it so much depends on what they read as children what their parents read what books they happen to come across in their teens and so on that you just can't generalize so it is not a science this um bibliotherapy world of ours it's we can be we try to be scientific as much as we can but in the end every client is someone that we look at very much as a unique person and it's our empathy with them which is most important in terms of choosing which books they're going to love because they they can tell us about the books they've read most recently that they liked and the books that they read 10 years ago that they loved and the books that they disliked in their 20s etc but Ultimately, we have to really fine tune with their help which books they're going to want to read right now. And it also depends on maybe they're about to go on holiday to India or they're just about to do a tour of Russia or something. And therefore, they're particularly interested in novelists from those countries. So with every client, it's a very individual prescription that we give them and that's why it's something that is quite time consuming and not something that you do lightly it's it's quite a big undertaking really 
I mean, it's it's a lovely thing to do, um, but it's it's something which takes a while to for us to come up with a prescription for. Well, it's interesting because it's you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking what's well, similar in the approach to the medicine that is so popular in Europe and is be- now just becoming more popular in America versus the MD, where they look at your entire environment. They look at your history. They want to know what's happening in your life emotionally and physically and in your home and at work and what's in the atmosphere of all of those places as well before they try to really discern what might be happening and then prescribe something. Yes, so... Sorry, well, I... it's a, it's it's instead of a um, an MD, it's a degree, and I can't think if it's called. I always mix it up with the other thing, but an osteopath, um, people that sort of will have some issue that they can't seem to get solved, will then go to this type of doctor to really try to figure out, look at the whole picture. So I want to yes. talk a little bit more about the prescription and how you go about it and finding the right book. We're going to take a short break. And then we'll we'll come back to that. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I am here with bibliotherapist Ella Bertu, and we'll be back in just a moment. So stay with us. All right, this is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. We're back. And so, Ella, we were just talking a little bit about the process, uh, completing the questionnaire, and actually how you develop the questionnaire. And I want to focus a little bit now on the prescription. So you give an instant prescription, and then you give a full prescription later on. And if we could just yes. talk a little bit about that process, is it just something like it comes to mind, this is what they need for now to carry them over, or or how has that worked? Yes, well, when we do our consultation with the client which lasts for around 50 minutes we have a deep conversation about what they love to read and what they don't like reading and what's happening in their lives currently and during that conversation inevitably we talk about a lot of brilliant novels and ones that they've read and ones that I think that they might like So with every client, there's always a book that comes to mind when I think, this is the perfect book for you, you've got to read it right now. And sometimes the client has already read that book, in which case I need to think of another one. But in most cases, I have a kind of eureka moment thinking, this is the book that you need to read. And that will then become their instant prescription. So we, the bibliotherapists, write down that book so that they can take it away with them and go and buy the book immediately. Then we allow a couple of days for the further prescription to be sent. So we generally send a prescription of six books, including the one that's on the instant prescription. And it's not just a list of titles, it's also explanations for why those books are the perfect books for them to read at this time in their lives. So there's a paragraph about each book underneath the title and author. So that takes time to collate, to think about, and also to ponder which are going to be the perfect collection of books for that person, because the prescription is not just a reading list. It's also a very carefully thought out collection of 
books which we feel this client is going to benefit from. So there'll be some books which will perhaps address something that they're going through, but also some books that will be a kind of um, counter to the emotions that they're going through. So maybe, for instance, if they've been bereaved, we might have two books which are about bereavement, but then we might have two books which are very upbeat and going to be very escapist kind of books that will take them into a, a totally different mindset. And then we might have another two books which are going to show them different futures without the person that they've been bereaved from that kind of thing so it always needs quite a lot of careful thought when we are collating the prescription and is it something that you and Susan are working on together for each client or are you working on clients individually we're working on them individually so every client sees one bibliotherapist and that bibliotherapist will be the one that comes together with the prescription but we do sometimes discuss between ourselves if we're trying to think of great ideas for that client. So if, for instance, we have a client who is about to travel on a tour around the Arctic, I might phone or Skype Suze and say, have you got any great suggestions for this person who's just about to go on an amazing trek across the snow and ice and then we we can talk about ideas together and obviously it's always going to help if you've got two minds thinking alike but our our consultations are always totally confidential so we we keep it to ourselves if it's a particularly difficult issue that the client doesn't want to share obviously and are you thinking very specifically in the regard of all right we need one book here that's going to help them with catharsis we need one book here that's going to help them with a deeper insight or we need another book here that's going to perk them up or switch their their uh, perspective on the situation i mean is it that sort of literally specific um, when you are trying to find that right book Yes, to an extent, because we're working in as, as if we are doctors, we are always thinking, okay, we need to give a really sort of balanced medicine here. We want a couple of things which will, as you say, help with catharsis and a couple of things that will be a kind of entertaining top note and so on. But then as I said earlier, with every client, it's always different. And during the consultation, we will always say to the client, what kind of things are you actually looking for? Do you want to be entertained mostly? Or do you want to be challenged? Or do you want to be taken deep into the emotions that you're feeling? Or do you actually want to perhaps try and ignore the the turmoil that you're experiencing. So we are very much led by the client as well as the fact that we're trying to give the right medicine to them. So it's a very, um, it's a balancing act with every different client. And um, there's also room for to and froing. So when we first send our prescription, we always say, do let us know if you have already read any of these books. And if you have, I'll replace it with a different book. Um, and also at that point, they might say, maybe, you know, 
I was really excited by the idea of an audiobook when I spoke to you can you put one down for me or that kind of thing so there's a little bit of room for going back and forth with the client after we send the prescription as well. And would you say you have a a typical client or tend to be um, in a certain place of of trying to improve psychological well-being or a journey of self-discovery or or an issue of 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 um, dealing with with a, a challenging emotional experience. Um, I had read that that it could be used for you know, existential crisis or unhappy in life or marriage or if you're bored or lost or being bullied. Would you say in your experience there has been more in one area than another? It's a, such a varying kind of reason why people come to see us. Often people come when they're having a career crisis or thinking that they might want to change their career. That is quite a common tendency, which is really interesting. But then also we often see people when they're at an important life juncture, such as they're about to retire and they're thinking, what am I going to read for the next 20 years of my life? I've just spent the last 30 years as a lawyer and now I want to read about other ideas in life, that kind of thing. But then we also get people when they're perhaps about to have a family for the first time, they're just about to have children, or when their children are leaving home, that's another time when we get people coming to see us and they're experiencing a kind of empty nest syndrome. So there's all sorts of different times when people come to us and Really, there aren't any particularly most common issues. We do see people when they're um, bereaved and also sometimes when they're going through a divorce and that kind of thing as well. And, and is there any commonality in the way that people find you? Because I, I had seen when I was doing some research that it said, you know, that it's, it's a very popular method and especially has been in the 80s and 90s, although it hasn't been deeply researched, that it was popular. And especially in the UK, where people that are seeking professional mental health may have to wait up to six months, that bibliotherapy is sort of an easy midterm solution. It may be the end, end up being the end solution as well, but it's something that can be easily adopted as a first step for immediate help. How are people finding you? They are frequently finding us through the website of the School of Life because they do have a very widely, um, what's the word, widely experienced and widely trafficked website. So lots of people find us through that. Also, people do sometimes find us through the NHS and discovering the idea of bibliotherapy through the British National Health Service. And they sometimes find their way to doctors who then mention bibliotherapy and then we're quite easily discoverable online. And also there's been quite a lot of press about bibliotherapy generally in the UK. And then also people find us through our book, The Novel Cure, which is a kind of practical handbook of bibliotherapy. And that is available in most shops in England at the moment. So people find the novel cure and then think, oh, what is this bibliotherapy idea? And then they quite often will come to us and have a bibliotherapy session as well. 
Um, so you had mentioned something earlier, Ella, about sort of practicing medicine. And I'm wondering if there has been any conflict for you or Susan around that, or is it more accepting in the UK that, that doctors and psychologists and um, other professional treatment uh, facilities and individuals are more accepting of, of health? Or, or are you looked at as sometimes that chiropractors may be looked at here, you know, that, oh, well, you're not a real doctor, or you shouldn't be doing this, or you're stepping on anyone's toes. Is there, there any problem with that? No, because we do make it very clear that we're not medically trained and we're not psychotherapists. We're, we're not actually trained as therapists. So we always make sure that it's very clear that we're not in any way competing with the medical profession. We, we see ourselves very much as an adjunct to the medical profession. And, and, and are you trained as bibliotherapists? Because I was also <laughs> surprised to see that there is training for bibliotherapy. Were either of you, um, had either of you gone through the training? No, because we effectively started the bibliotherapy practice in England and we're now beginning to train other people. But in England, when we began working as bibliotherapists, there wasn't any kind of training available. So we trained ourselves effectively to do it. And therefore, we we did learn on the job. But now we've had eight years experience and seen probably 3000 clients between us over the years, um, through various different means. So we do feel like we've got a really good understanding of it and now we we can teach other people how to do it as well. So there was a study in 2012, uh, researchers at Ohio State University in America found that this process could actually change a reader's behavior um, and other studies seem to support that. Is there a debate, do you feel, uh, in the UK as to whether or not it's effective? Sorry, could you say that again? I was saying, yes, that there, there's a study um, in 2012 out of the researchers at Ohio State University that found that the, the process of bibliotherapy could, you know, actually change the uh, uh, reader's behavior. They did. I don't know how they tested it. <laughs> tested it. Yes. And I'm just wondering if there's a de any debate about it in your experience or if people just... Uh, assume that of course it works and, and it's reasonable that it would work and that it's valuable. Yeah, actually there have been quite a few studies of that nature done. So for instance, there was the Science Journal had a big study about the ways that reading fiction can affect your behavior. And it was shown by these studies that people experienced far greater empathy when they read fiction and that they responded far better to questions and situations which involved other people who they needed to empathize with and that if they'd read literary fiction before being in certain situations, then they would be far more empathetic and respond far more with much more emotional intelligence. Um, but it's a very difficult thing to prove in a scientific way because you can't 
really quantify whether Emily Bronte is going to have a more profound effect than Ernest Hemingway, you know, that kind of thing. It's very, very difficult to... To know which book will have the desired effect, right? You know that a book could motivate or console or engage parts of the brain and memory that weren't engaged. But the the tricky part is to figure out for each individual in each situation which book. And do you feel like you two, you and Susan, have been, are are sort of born for that and, and just naturally good at figuring that out? And have there been cases where it it's been especially challenging? Yes, I think we we have always felt that we do have a great grasp of literature between us and that we, having studied literature together at Cambridge and then read millions of books since then as much as possible, we do feel that we do have a really good knowledge at our fingertips for which books will suit which people. And it's an intuitive art as much as anything. Um But we also feel through discussing with each other and now we have other bibliotherapists that we've trained that we can always be learning and we're always learning from our clients too. Every time we meet a client, they often tell us about books that they've read, which we haven't yet read. So we're always absorbing new ideas about books. And it was through our practice of giving people the right books at the right time and also through getting feedback from our clients that we then decided to write the novel Cure in which we do prescribe certain books for certain situations and we felt that those particular books that we chose for certain um, ailments genuinely worked and that was done through our own research and through the research that we did kind of effectively on our clients so we we felt that those books are in a way definitively great for those particular ailments that we've chosen in the novel cure but of course there's always going to be some books which some people aren't going to respond to um so that's the reason why it is very difficult to be strictly scientific about the whole thing so the, There's always got to be an element of matching the right book to the right person. So the novel Cure is your and Susan's book uh, by Ken and Gate, uh, published in, in September of 2013, The Novel Cure, an A to Z of Literary Remedies. And The Guardian yes. calls your book an exuberant pageant of literary fiction, which I didn't think of a nicer review. Was, yes. How did the process of writing the book come about? Well, we had worked together as bibliotherapists at the School of Life for five years and we gradually were collating our best cures, so to speak, that went with particular ailments. And during that time, we really started thinking these books really do work brilliantly for people with these particular issues. So we should actually try and make them into a kind of manual for people to use. So it was really us just thinking, it's fantastic doing this bibliotherapy service with people one-to-one, but wouldn't it be great if we could publish a book that anyone can use as a kind of self-help 
manual to literature so they could look up an ailment like a broken heart and find what book to read at that time in their lives when they have a broken heart. And so Susan and I sat down over a couple of bottles of wine one night and wrote down every single ailment we could think of that might be cured by a book from anger to zestlessness and from nausea to shame and so on. And we had lots of fun with the different ailments that we came up with. So we've got things like giving up smoking in there. We've got hiccups. We've got um, being in a cult, being in need of a good cry, etc. So there's a lot of things, some of which are serious and some of which are more lighthearted. And so is the book for being in a cult for people who would like to be in a cult and need to find the right cult or for people who are in a cult and maybe realizing it might not have been the best decision? It's the latter. And, yes. and what's so, the book that one should read? We have a brilliant book called Amity and Sorrow by Peggy Riley, which is about a girl who has been born into a cult and is gradually realizing that it's a bit of a strange way to live and that may, and that there's another world out there and that maybe she needs to get out and find it. And it is, it's a very eye-opening book. It's, it's really good. But of course, it's one of those um, non sequiturs that if you're actually in a cult, then you probably aren't going to be able to read that book. So some of our suggested cures for particular ailments are a little bit tongue-in-cheek in a way. So we've got a cure for being a dictator as well. Well, we know that if you are a dictator of a country, you're probably never going to actually sit down and read <laughs> a great novel, sadly. Um, so we do have some of our cures like that, which are kind of a little bit more of a... Um, not exactly light-hearted, but a, an idea which the reader is going to find fun to read as they go through our book. But we know that a dictator, for instance, is probably never going to read that book. Whereas there are a lot of very serious and heartfelt cures in this book. So, for instance, the cures for cure for being depressed or the cure for being different or the cure for being um, feeling left out. They're all very serious and heartfelt cures that we we really earnestly believe will help you if you are in that particular situation. And is bibliotherapy something that's being embraced by teachers and, and in the classroom? When you mentioned those last few um, book cures, I'm thinking for kids that are experiencing problems with bullying or feeling depressed or isolated. Is there yes, a movement I in that direction in education? <clears throat> Yes, I think since the National Health Service in England has taken up the idea of bibliotherapy, it is now spreading into schools as well. And actually, Susan and I have just finished writing our second book, which is aimed at children. It's called The Story Cure, and it's the same idea as The Novel Cure, but parents will be able to look up issues which are affecting their children or it's equally aimed at teachers, grandparents, any carers for children. And they can look up anything from bullying to first love to moving house to starting a new school. And 
we give books which will help children through those situations and it's aimed at uh, readers from naught to 18 so the cures are for children who are um, early readers also picture book readers who aren't readers at all but are being read to and for chapter book readers and for young adolescents young adults so our our cures in the story cure are books for children of all ages but we're expecting adults to buy the book in order to find books for their children to read and were there any surprises there were these areas that you had both or either of you had had experience in as far as children's books or young adult fiction or did you have to bone up on, on some new reading material we we had to do an enormous amount of new reading it, when we came up with the idea it was through sheer excitement at what a wonderful thing it would be to do and we imagined that we knew quite a lot about children's literature but actually we realized there's so much amazing new brilliant children's literature out there that's been published in the last 20 years that it was a really big uh challenge to to go through all the reading that we needed to do. We both have children and we both love reading children's literature as much as we love adult literature. So it was a really wonderfully enjoyable challenge, but it, it did mean there was a lot to read. And I have spent the last year reading young adult fiction, also um, kids' books of chapter book age and picture books and I've really loved it but I do feel like there's a there's an enormous world of kids books out there which um, in a way we've only just touched the tip of the iceberg because there's so many other countries worth of kids books as well to read but um, we've done it as thoroughly as we possibly could between the two of us. And did you find that the two of you also share a symmetry in your likes and dislikes for children's books and young adult literature? Yes, I I think that is the case. Luckily, um, we we have pretty much concurred with everything that we've read together, and with all the books that we discovered as for children's books, we one of us would read it and tell the other one about it, and then the other one would check it out, and then we would agree or disagree. So we did have to put quite a lot of books on the slush pile that we realized weren't quite working for us. So we had to make sure very thoroughly that we both really agreed that they were working one way or another. But of course, it's a, there's such an amazing wealth of children's books now that it we're, we were always aware that there were probably books that we were missing out and feeling really sad about that. And also, there are so many brilliant books now for kids about death, about bereavement, and even about depression and that kind of thing that we had to choose the best of what we could find and then just decide, right, this is going to be the perfect book for this situation. And then in some cases, we've also done lists. So we've got the 10 best books for a child who has experienced the loss of a loved one and that kind of thing. So that is has been a really interesting 
road for us to go down. And when can we expect that book to hit the shelves? Well, it's coming out in England in October this year. And we hope that it will follow the novel cure around the world and gradually um, be seen on the shelves in the States as well. But um, we don't we don't have a date yet for when it will come out in America. All right. Well, was for summer is quickly coming to a close. Is there a, one book, a summer reading book that you would recommend if people have only the time to read one before the summer ends? Wow, that's an exciting and um, brilliant challenge to give me. I would say the one book you should read before the summer ends is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth von Arnim, which is, although it's called The Enchanted April, it, it feels to me like an amazingly summary book because it's set in Italy when everything is in bloom and it's really beautiful and inspiring and makes you feel like you want to be outside and make the most of nature and make the most of love. It's a very romantic book and it's one that makes you feel glad to be alive and making the best of the great outdoors. Well, Ella, thank you so much, Ella Bertu, for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. It was absolutely wonderful and enlightening to speak with you today. You too, Ellie. It's been great to talk to you. And do you want to tell me before you go about what you're reading at the moment? Oh, no, that's a tough one. I've been in search, <laughs> in search. But Interesting. I've mostly been reading nonfiction because I interview a lot of people who have written books and typically they've written nonfiction. So that's been a stack of nonfiction books has been what has been on my bedside table for the last uh, year. And I need a well, maybe, fiction, so I know what to put on there now. Yeah, read that Elizabeth von Arnhem. It's, it's a really lovely book. Yeah, I, th I think you'll love it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Ellie. That was really interesting.